Christopher Marlowe wrote the play entitled The Tragic History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus. This play narrates how Dr. Faustus was an educated man, a man of science, a doctor in science and in theology. And yet for all of the things he possessed, he was a very unhappy man. He wanted more. And he came to the conclusion that he would never on his own get more. And so he determined that he was going, going to go into a bargain with the devil. The basis of what we have now come to know as the Faustian Pact. And essentially he conjures up this devil... And he makes an agreement that if the devil would give him 24 years of everything that he wanted, he would give him his soul. He did exactly that. He had 24 years of fame and of wealth. But as those years began to progress, he began to rethink this bargain that he had made. And though he tried to break it, it was unbreakable. This was a man who made a bargain and sold his soul for more. To a large extent, it is possible that many today do the same. A Faustian pact. A trading of one's soul for what we can possess. And here in Hebrews chapter 13, the passage that we read together, particularly in verses 5 and 6. The writer of Hebrew tells us that we must not make a Faustian pact. We must not trade away our soul for material gain. These verses, that is verses 1 to 6 in Hebrews 13, on the surface, at first blush, appear to be disjointed appear to be disconnected from what is surrounding this this paragraph. For the writer begins in verse 13 by saying, let brotherly love continue. He calls upon them not to forget to entertain strangers. He's he's commanding them to be generous, but but in, in, in a particular sense by being hospitable. And we who live in a city like this where... There's great unfriendliness. There's great anonymity. People don't want to meet and don't want to correspond, especially with strangers. Believers are told to entertain strangers. For in so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And by the way, this is literal. This is to be taken literal. The Bible says you have to entertain strangers by, because by so doing, you may eventually entertain an angel. And we know that in the Old Testament, this is precisely what occurred. Because in chapter 18 of Genesis... Abraham entertained the Lord and two angels with him. And later on in in Sodom, Lot entertained angels. And so this is not something that must be seen as merely esoteric or out there. So they're called upon to display brotherly love, Christian love one for another. They are to not forget to be hospitable to those who are strangers. In verse 3 he says, remember the prisoners... Those who are chained as if chained with them. And they are called to visit prisoners. Well, 
it isn't that they were just called upon to visit any old prison for any old reason. It is because believers were being locked away, were being imprisoned. And so they were to encourage those who were locked away. And by the way, in those days, prisons were not to be seen as five-star hotels. They were damp, dark places with, with vermins and all kinds of creatures. And people starved to death in prisons. And so they were to be careful to remember those who were in prison for the faith. And then he gives an exhortation regarding marriage. They are to be faithful in marriage and faithful to their marriage vow. It refers to all who, whether married or unmarried, that there is to be faithfulness and sexual purity within marriage. He says that God will judge the fornicator, those who engage in sexual relationship before marriage, or those who engage in sexual relationship with others inside of marriage. God will judge fornicators and adulterers. And so there's a call. And then he says, let your conduct be without covetousness. These are the verses I want us to focus on. But let me make it very clear that these verses, though they may appear to be disconnected, astacato giving of commandments, the, the, the entirety of this paragraph must be read through the grid and the prism of chapter 12, verse 28, where the writer says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, or let us be thankful, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So to, to explain this a little bit more, he's saying to them, that we are receiving a kingdom that is not shakable, that is heaven, cannot be shaken, cannot be destroyed. We must therefore serve God acceptably in a manner that pleases him. And one of the ways in which we please him uh, is by living out our Christian life and living it out in a way that is honoring to God. And that includes things like showing love to other Christians entertaining strangers, being hospitable, remembering those who are in prisons, being honorable and loyal in marriage, and not living our lives in covetousness. I want us to take us then to look at this command in verse 5 and the following verse, verse 6. I want us to look first at the exhortation, the exhortation against covetousness and the call for contentment. I want us to look secondly at the reason or the motivation for contentment and finally the expression of confidence, our response to God in light, in light of what is said here. First of all then, the exhortation. The exhortation is to keep oneself free from the love of money. The, the writer says, let your conduct, verse 5, be without covetousness. The term that is used here for covetousness is a term that simply means the love of money. Let your life be free from the love of money. That is from that insatiable lust. What is covetousness? Covetousness is an insatiable lust or thirst for more. In this instance, it is the insatiable thirst for money or for material possession. And the writer says, your life, you should live, you should conduct yourself free from the love of money or from covetousness. That insatiable thirst for material possession. You can understand why he would say something like this. Because when one reads this command in chapter 13 of Hebrews verse 5, in light of what was said in chapter 10, we know that 
some of these Christians in the first century were being persecuted for their faith. And part of the persecution that they faced was the confiscation of their goods, their homes, their possessions, their savings. And it would therefore appear, at least on the surface of that passage, that some of them, having lost their homes, having lost their possessions, might have begun to feel vulnerable. They don't have money. They're thinking of retirement. What happens when I get older? I don't have anything. My house has been taken. My money has been taken. And they began then to believe that they should pursue accumulation, to, to gather up as much as they possibly can as a means of securing their lives. And the writer says, despite all of that you have suffered, live your life free from covetousness, from the love of money or material possession. This command to live free from covetousness falls within the larger discourse of Scripture on this theme of covetousness. It is our Lord Jesus Christ who, in the clearest of terms, have warned against covetousness. In responding once and addressing a group before whom he stood, this group consisted of Pharisees, whom the scripture says, Luke, at least Luke tells us that these Pharisees were lovers of money. The Lord Jesus Christ says this in Luke 16 verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, money. You cannot serve God and mammon. Here the Lord is unambiguous, forthright, that the love of God and the love of money or material possession cannot coexist in the same heart. It is possible to love God, and it is possible to love money, but the love of God and the love of money cannot abide together in one. Why? Because you see, the love of money is described by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 as idolatry. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life or my life. And if money is an idol, it can never exist with God. And so the writer says, let your conduct be free from covetousness, from the love of money, which is idolatry, because it seeks to take the place of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ will continue. In chapter 12 of Luke, our Lord is on his way to Jerusalem. And there's a crowd surrounding him, and a man shouts out from the crowd, Lord, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. And our Lord Jesus Christ comes back to him and says, Who made me an arbiter? Who made me a judge between the two of you? And then he says these words, Beware, take heed, beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. The true life, that which makes us live, is not dependent upon physical things. That the true life is not experienced through material things. But the true life is that which is lived in relationship to God and doing his will. That's the true life. It doesn't depend upon money. He will later on say, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
So the writer says, negatively, live your life free from covetousness. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Then he gives the positive side of the exhortation, which is really a call for contentment. You see, the opposite of covetousness, grasping for more and more and more, is contentment. And so he says, positively now, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. The term that is used here for contentment, archaeo, means to have enough, to be sufficient. It, it, contentment is really an attitude of the mind, an attitude of the mind or the heart, where one considers the generous provisions of God in one's life as sufficient. That the things God has given us, whether they be great or whether they be few, we are content with that because we have received it from the hand of our generous God. And after all, we were not indeed entitled to any of it. And so it is to have enough. It is to be it's satisfied with what God has provided. Now, now, just as the Lord warns against greed or covetousness, he encourages contentment. The Lord Jesus could say in that well-known passage in Matthew 6, 31 to 33, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Here, the writer, the Lord Jesus says, don't live your life worrying about what you're going to eat or drink or wear, about material possessions. God, your Father, knows your physical needs. He understands them all completely. What you ought to do, however, is to seek first His kingdom. And the kingdom of God means the reign of God. You're to seek that the, the reign of God, God's rule, is extended not only in the world, but extended in your life. And as you seek to live under the rule and the will of God, as you seek to please Him, because you're under His kingly rule, your Father will take care of your needs. If you take care of God's business, He will take care of your business. The Apostle Paul encourages contentment. In other words, it is not only of the Lord Jesus who called for contentment, but in the apostles you see that this call for contentment is also prominent. Notice in 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10, Paul says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we carry nothing out. doesn't matter how much money you have or I have. When we die, we don't take it with us. You don't see hearses going to the graveyard having a U-Haul behind them. We don't carry it. We, we didn't come with anything. And when we go out, we don't go with anything. So, Paul says, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, so he's talking about the basic necessities of life, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
And here's one of the most misunderstood, misquoted verse in Scripture. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Yeah, those who read this, the root, the love of money is the root of all evil. This is not what the Scripture says. It says, listen again, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, of which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He's telling them to be content with what they have. The Apostle Paul expressed contentment in his own life. He says, later on, he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 and following, he says, but I have... I rejoice now greatly that, that at last your care for me has flourished again. They were sending him material possession. They had stopped. And he says, though you surely did care, but lack the opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to needs. I'm not, I'm not saying this to butter you up because I want more from you. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. That means to be poor. And I know how to, be, to abound, to be rich. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. So he says, I have learned to be content in every sphere of life. Now, I've learned to be content when I have much. No, that's not very difficult. It's not very difficult to us to be content when we have our house overflowing with stuff. We don't have place to put them. But it's a very different thing to be content when we have little. Paul says, I know how to abound and how to abase, how to have much and live in contentment with little. Why? Because he has learned the secret of contentment. That contentment cannot be gained by things. The true contentment is found, however, in the Lord. And so the writer of Hebrews takes then this theme that is important, that is emphasized by the Lord, emphasized by the Apostle Paul, against covetousness and for contentment and says, live your life free from covetousness and be content with such things that you have. But thankfully, he doesn't stop there. He moves on to give us a motivation. Why must we be content? And and let, let me just make one point before I move to that. We must not interpret from this that the call for contentment means that somehow the writer glorifies poverty. He's not suggesting that we are called to live a life of poverty. He's not saying that money is evil. What he says is the love of money is evil. This is a world of difference, and we must bear that in mind. We must work hard. We must save. We must use the things God has given us for our own use and pleasure to benefit others and to benefit the kingdom, but we must never ever get to the place where money becomes central or things become central in our hearts. Well, why? Why must they be content? He goes on in the same verse, in verse 5. He says, be content with such things as you have, and here's the reason, for, for, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here's one of the most glorious promises in all of Scripture. That is, the reason for contentment is the guarantee that God has given that he will not leave or forsake his children. You see, this, this part, part B of verse 5, is an emphatic statement, an emphatic in several ways. First of all, he, 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 he uses the pronoun he. Anyone who understands the grammar know that he doesn't have to do it. It's redundant. He himself has said, God has spoken, 
God has given his word. In chapter 6, we see that the promises of God are guarantees from God. And the writer says in chapter 6 that when God promised, he says, in determined to show how abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on, on the hope set before us. Stated simply, he's saying that when God gave a promise to Abraham, he guaranteed it by two immutable or unchanging things. The two unchangeable things by which God guaranteed his word was first of all his promise and then secondly his oath. You see when God promises you can take it to the bank. It's done. It's guaranteed because God is faithful. He cannot lie. He himself has said. The second way in which the writer emphasizes the promise given of God's presence, I will not leave or forsake you is by the use of negative participles, particles in the, in the verse. It's not very obvious in our, in our English translation. It's difficult to translate. But let me try to explain what he is doing here. First of all, he uses two negative particles. When, when you read in your Bible, in verse 5, he says, he himself has says, I will never leave you. It's much more emphatic than that. He used two negatives there, two nots. So he's saying, I will not. I most certainly will not leave you. Then in the next promise, or part of the promise, nor forsake you, he uses three nots or negatives. So there, and as I said to you, it's very difficult to translate. He's saying, I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. No, I will definitely, most definitely, I will not abandon you. I don't know if it could be said any more clearer. I will definitely, most certainly, never, under no circumstance, leave or abandon you. Where does this promise come from? Commentators have searched for this promise. I want to suggest to you, in the words of another, that this promise of God never leaving or forsaking is a tried and proven promise given of old to Israel. One of the first places where we see this promise in Scripture is in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy. Moses is coming to the end of his life. He can see the promised land of Canaan, but he's not going to enter in because of his disobedience. There are giants in the land. There are vast armies more powerful than Israel. And Moses, and the words of a dying man to the generation to enter the land, he makes this statement to them. He says, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, that is the enemies across the land. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He will not leave or forsake you. In the same chapter, Deuteronomy 31, Moses again uses the same language to address Joshua who will succeed him as leader of Israel. He says to Joshua, I'm the Lord. He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. Here it is. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid or dismayed. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. He himself has said, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. 
But perhaps the place where this command, where this, this promise comes from in the Old Testament is most closely aligned to Joshua, the book of Joshua in chapter 1 and verse 5. For there, Moses now is dead. Joshua has been given command. He's a great warrior, but he's not of the statue, at least not so far of Moses. Moses was a giant. He was a spiritual giant who led Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, put up with a lot of stuff, complaining, people fighting against him, enemies around him. This man was a spiritual giant, and now the Lord had removed him, and and Joshua now is to fill his boots. You can imagine how fearful he is. So on this occasion, the Lord does not send a prophet. The Lord comes directly to Joshua, and this is what the Lord says to him. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Someone wisely said years ago, one with God is a majority. One with God is a majority. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. You see, put positively, the Lord says, I will be with you. And this promise given in chapter 13 means I will be with you in all places, at all times, and in all circumstances. But we must be careful that we do not read this as merely a statement of divine omnipresence. We speak of The attribute of God, one of the attributes of God is divine omnipresence, meaning that God is everywhere at the same time. God is in every place and not shut out of any place. God is everywhere in his essence, in his being, in his power, in his wisdom, in his strength. But when the Lord says, I will not abandon you, I will not leave you or forsake you, it doesn't mean that he's going to be with his people in this general sense that he's everywhere. No, when the statement is made by Moses to Israel and by God to Joshua, and this statement made now in chapter 13 to the people of God and to us, it is not a statement about divine omnipresence. God is indeed the one who fills the heavens and the earth. He's a God who is near and a God who is far. The writer in Psalm 139 says, Where shall I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, you are there. If I fly on the dawn to the east, even there your hand will lead me. Wherever you go, God is there. But this is not what is being said. What he means here is that God's special presence will be with his people. That presence that is characterized by love, by grace, by help, by his mercy. You see, the promise, I will not leave you nor forsake you, is a promise of God's continual gracious presence with his people. This is the secret of contentment, that we have always the Lord, the gracious God, the powerful God, the covenantal God. It is a promise of God's continual covenantal presence with his people. And because of this, The writer in chapter 13 says to them, this is the expression, this is is how you should respond. 
you should respond then with an expression of confidence in the Lord. He says, God has said himself, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And verse 6, so we may boldly say, so we may confidently say. I don't have time to develop this concept of confidence as used in Hebrews, but it's all over Hebrews. This parousia, it's not a word that is used here, but it is a synonym. This boldness, this coming before the Lord. Well, he says, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. You see, if you have the Lord's presence with you, it should lead then to confidence or trust in the Lord. Because God's presence with us is the presence of his help with us. Uh, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. The psalmist, the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 118 was surrounded by many enemies. But he says, the Lord was with me, and the Lord helped me. And therefore, he says, I will not fear what man can do. The writer of Hebrews draws upon this final hallelujah psalm in Psalm 118. And he says, the response to the presence of God is that we must indeed be confident. We must trust in the Lord because he's there to help. We may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. In the Old Testament may read, I, I will... Look up to the hills from whence my help comes. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You see, the Lord's presence is a helping presence. So we may trust in him. In Hebrews, the writer makes it clear that God is seated on his throne. And his throne is a throne of mercy and of grace. Therefore, we may come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You see, God is a helping God. His presence is a helping presence. So we may come boldly. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father, we are told that having suffered and being tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You see, we can, be, we can trust in God's presence because he is the helper. He is our Ebenezer, our stone of help, as we read in the Old Testament. But not only must there be confidence in God's presence because he is our helper, there must also be a boasting in God's presence. For the writer says, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, this, this question, what can man do to me, is a boasting. He's not only confident in God as his helper, but there's a boasting. And you and I may boast in our God, who is our helper. Because our God is a sovereign God. Our God is a king of glory, the Lord of the armies of heaven. He rules in heaven, rules on earth in the church, and rules over all men. And even though we are not exempt from hardship, we know that because our God is our helper and, uh, and sovereign in power and might, he's able to work all things together for good to those who love the Lord. He's able to weave together the tragedies and the trials and the hardships of our lives and bring out of all of that good. You see, therefore, we can boast. We may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. What shall I fear that man can do to me? Thus, my friends, let me summarize what we have said. We have said there's a call to contentment, that we should live free from covetousness and be content. There's a motivation for that life of contentment that, that is 
dependent ultimately upon God's constant gracious presence with us. And as a result of his presence, we're called to confidence in him, to rely upon him, and to boast in his constant presence, to rejoice in it, and to declare it. R. Kent Hughes, a pastor and, and commentator, biblical commentator, narrates a story of a king who was very sick. And so he called his advisors and asked them what to do, how he could be healed. And they had a, a plan for him, an ingenious plan. They said, well, we know how to cure you. All you've got to do is to find a man who is contented and start wearing his shirt, and you'll be healed. So the king sent out his servants, and they went up and down throughout his kingdom looking for a contented man, but they could not find one. And almost at the point of despair, they came to the edge of the kingdom, and there at last they found a contented man. But he did not have a shirt. You see, the point simply is true contentment does not depend upon things. We live in an age of discontent. Do you know, it's amazing. You, you buy an iPhone. I, I don't know anybody today who still have the first generation iPhone. Maybe there are some people who are curators of things that are old. But most of us don't have a first-generation iPhone. And if you have an iPhone 6, I'm not sure what the latest edition is, but if you have it for a year or two, you think that this, something is wrong with this thing. As soon as there's an announcement of a, of a new iPhone, iPhone 7 or whatever it is, we, get, we somehow feel, you know what, 6 doesn't work anymore. The thing is working perfectly. It does everything that it should do. But we somehow start complaining, oh, no, it doesn't open as fast as it does. And the pictures are not clear enough. The camera definitely is not working. And we go on and on and on. Because what? we really want an iPhone 7. We are living in a generation of discontentment. And the more we have, the more discontented we are. And yet the Bible tells us, our lives are not to be based on things. There's a, there's a, there's a God-sized size space in the heart that things can never, ever fill. And the more we stuff things into it, it's like a deep, dark pit that can never find the bottom. Only the Lord. You see, our true contentment is found in God who is sufficient for himself and sufficient for us. True joy, true contentment is knowing God, the infinite being, who thrills us, who satisfies us more than anything on earth can ever do. And that's what our generation doesn't understand. That knowing the Lord and having Him is having everything that we need. We're told to live free from covetousness, covetousness and be content. We must also recognize that true security is found in God's presence, in, in the promise of his presence, that, that our bottom line is not how much money we have in the bank, but our true bottom line is God's presence with us. And you and I, we do not walk this road alone. We have a Lord who goes with us. He is sufficient for today and sufficient for tomorrow. He says, for the, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord. 
He's present with you in every state and in every stage of life. We would say with the writer, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side yet not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted but never forsaken. We are struck down but never destroyed. He has promised, I most definitely, I most certainly will never leave you nor abandon you. And that is a promise, that is our security, that we have the Lord with us. And it is true that there are times that we we do not hear his voice. We do not sense his presence. And sometimes we think, when we look at the future, it's all up to me. I've got to prepare for retirement. This is a tough financial environment in which we live. We begin to worry, how am I going to find a job that's going to really pay me enough to live in an expensive world like this? We begin to wonder about our children. How are they going to make it? How are they going to live in a culture that is so atheistic, a culture so materialistic, so immoral? And there are many questions, but the Lord says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And sometimes when we go through the dark night of the soul, we wonder where, where is the Lord in all my troubles? I think of the story in Genesis 28 of Jacob. He's fleeing from his brother. He's going to Haran. He's an exile. And he comes at night to this barren place. And he takes a stone as his pillow. How many of you have stone pillows at home? He takes a stone as his pillow and he goes to sleep. And as he sleeps, he has a dream. He sees a ladder, technically a staircase, but he sees a ladder anchored on earth on the top entering into heaven. And he sees angels descending and ascending on this ladder. It's a picture of God's help, God sending him blessing and receiving his prayers. And above the ladder, Jacob says he sees the Lord standing. In other words, to receive his prayers and to send help. And the Lord speaks to him and says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. I will go with you. I will not leave you. And Jacob awakes and he says these amazing words. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. This is Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And as we make our way and progress through this life, We're on the train, we're on the subway, we're on the streetcar, we're on the bus. We go to work and we do our jobs. We may wonder, it's all life. It's all the stuff of life. We may not see God, we may not hear him because he's invisible God. He's often imperceptible in his movement. He doesn't always surround us with shaking 
the mountain is not always on fire. And so we begin to doubt that he's there. But you and I need to know, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. You and I need to know that everywhere we are at the gate of heaven. That everywhere we are, that's the gate of heaven. Because God is there. And he has carried you for 10, or for 30, or for 70 years. He will carry you. He says, I, surely, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so I want to say to you, you have that guarantee because Jesus Christ was forsaken for us. It is he on the cross who says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken for our sins. He bore the pain of God-forsakenness because of our sins that we would never be forsaken. And your duty this morning, if you're not saved, is to forsake your sins and flee to Jesus Christ. And you will have as a guarantee for your life a God who says, I will most definitely never under no circumstance leave or abandon you. But I will help you. You can believe it. You can boast in it. Because the same God who was with the three Hebrew boys in the fire, we're told that in the midst of the fire there was a fourth person, one like the Son of Man. The same God who was with the three Hebrew boys. The same God who was with Jeremiah when he was put in a pit. The same God who was with Paul and Silas in the jail is the same God today who is with you. Therefore, fear not. Say, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear. May he bless you for Christ's sake. Amen. Pray with me, friends. Our Father, we really have no reason to fear or to doubt. And so we pray in the midst of life and in the midst of our hardships and our struggles, help us to trust. And thank you that you have given your word and you cannot go back. You will not leave. You will not abandon us. And so we ask, Lord, meet our needs according to your riches and glory. Give us a contented heart. Help us not to live for things, but to live for you. To put you first in our worship, in our service. To do all things for your glory. And Father, we thank you. Because we can say with Israel of whole, hitherto has the Lord helped us. You have helped us to this point, and we believe you will help us today and tomorrow and way into the future. So we thank you for all you've done and for what you will yet do for Jesus' sake. Amen.